back to our series that we will conclude on Christmas Eve, um, Home for Christmas. Last week, if you were here, if you weren't, I, I would encourage you to go back and catch up with us. We learned a new German word, a word called Zenzucht. Zenzucht. Zenzucht is a word in German. I'm not giving you the English translation because there is no English translation of that word. We, we don't have one. But it, it means, in German, a sense of deep, inconsolable longing, of yearning. It is a feeling of intensely missing something, but being uncertain of what it is. One definition I came across is that it is a disorienting longing. I like that one a lot. It says a lot in two words. And my premise was, and it, and it is in the whole series, is that the Christmas season is many ways the season of Zenzut. It's a deep and oftentimes disorienting longing that all of us share for something. We can't quite put our fingers on it, but at Christmas time, I think we get closest to it. I think we're always experiencing this, this disorientation. But at, at Christmas time, we come the closest to figuring it out. What we're all longing for is home. Everybody wants to be home, especially at Christmas, right? At least according to the movies, the songs, the television shows. But it's also proven true. I mean, look at the airline fares at Christmas. Look at the traffic predictions at Christmas. My daughter is a, is a, a junior in college, and um, she's coming home next week. Why? Because the semester wraps up so she can be home for Christmas. We run our calendar along this, along this pattern. But while that feeling, that longing for home, is most associated with this time of year, Zenzukt isn't merely some seasonal nostalgia, but it's, it's both a cultural and psychological phenomena. It turns out, and we looked at this last week, it's really a fascinating study if you wanted to put the time into it, that for all people, for all of time, across all cultures, there has been a constant longing for home. Yet, as we discovered last week, it turns out that home isn't really a place, this, this physical thing. It can't be because places go away. If you were here last week, I, I shared for you how I went searching for home, and I went to where I grew up, and then I went to the place as a little boy that was most home to me, my grandmother's house, and I set the scene of how excited I was to get back and get all the feels, and when I got there, they had torn my grandmother's house down. It's a strip mall. And I, I just had that feeling, that longing for something that I couldn't find. I, I wanted to be home, but home wasn't there anymore, right? And it's not just um, places. There are lots of well-meaning folks that will tell you home's not the place. They'll say that, that home is the people in the place. And I think that's closer to the truth. But here, here's, here's the harsh reality. The people in the place change too, right? Like, they're not the same. Sometimes you used to like them when you were younger, and now you're not so sure anymore, right? Or maybe they just get older. Relationships change. Relationships fade. And unfortunately, even, even the people that are the closest to us and mean the most to us, they go away. They die. In fact, I'd argue that trying to get people, trying to make relationships be home, actually puts a burden on other folks and, and those relationships that they were never really meant to bear and carry. They become, in some sense, dysfunctional because you've made them your home. 
And, and so if home isn't a place and I can't actually get to a physical existence of it, and it isn't the people, then what is the home that I and everybody seems to long for? Here's where the story of Christmas actually intersects this shared longing and, and where the Christian story of Christmas diverges from the cultural pursuit of home. You see, culturally, the thought has always been to try and meet that desire that all of us have by creating for ourselves home here through some sense of peace or calm or belonging or control. And if we can get it, that would evoke within us through relationships maybe or through accomplishments or through possessions that would evoke home for us. The story of Christmas, though, declares another solution because the story of Christmas says the reason that none of you feel at home, the reason that all men for all of time has ha have had and shared this zenzuked feeling is that you're not home. We long for a different world because the truth is we weren't created for this one. Christianity, as opposed to any other religion, makes a pretty bold claim that the reason that all men for all of time have had a longing for home is that every man for all of time, save two, Adam and Eve, all of us have found ourselves somewhere, well, as the Bible put it, east of Eden. We find ourselves separated from the home that God had originally fashioned and created us for. We find ourselves in a state of exile. Sojourners is the word the scriptures use. We looked at it last week, meaning that we're on a journey. We're not home. We're a people traveling. And so the story of scripture as a whole from beginning to end is this. We are a people in exile trying to find our way back home. And oftentimes, and time and time again, we incorrectly settle for substitutes which just cannot satisfy that longing. Now, you know, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know some of the ancient stories. You see it over and over again. From God calling Abraham away from his homeland, right, to, to a land that God would give him, a promised land. But yet again, that same thing that crept into Eden creeps into that promised land. This desire of the people not to allow God to be God, but instead to be a God for themselves. And, and sin does what it always does, right? It separates. This re rebellious streak breaks down the relationship between man and God and man and each other and man and his creation. And, well, Abraham and his, his family, his later generations of his family, they wind up in exile. Some of you know God raises up Moses eventually to lead those people back to the land of promise again. But what happens when they get there? Sin and rebellion and distance and exile. The Israelites wind up this time not in Egypt but in Babylon. Each and every time looking for and longing for home. And the prophets would proclaim over and over that the day would come when everyone would be welcome home. It would be a giant invitation, not just for the Israelites, but for everyone, even the Egyptians and the Babylonians. That giant invitation, the one we've all been longing for, it arrives in the most unexpected of ways. In a baby, in a child, born in a manger, in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. This child was to be called Emmanuel. It meant God with us. Again, no longer distant and removed, but this God that now is here in, in our world, coming to make his home, choosing to make his home for a time in ours, amongst us, in us, and to invite us ultimately to follow him 
home because he would proclaim, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way home. So here's what we looked at last week. This is the setup for where we're going. Home is not a place. Nor is home any one person. People go away. Human relationships fade and fail. Home is a certain person, Jesus Christ. The psalmist declared this long ago. Lord, through all the generations, you've been our home. It's you. And this is why home is not where the heart is. Home is the who who's in your heart. You can put the wrong thing in there and try to settle for a substitute. Most of our lives, this is what we're guilty of doing. And this is why Jesus spoke so much about your heart. Because who's at the center of it changes everything. He came to ransom it. He came to set it free again and to bring you to the home that you've all been searching for. To overwhelm, overcome all of the substitutes. But, and here's the question for the day, if home is not this elusive place, but home is God, how do we get there? How do we receive him, in a sense? It, Jesus had a friend and disciple, John, and after John had spent a lifetime in ministry, likely as a very old man, he set out to record his experiences with Jesus. And in trying to sum up what took place in Bethlehem, here's what he would say. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So to find the answer, right, to, to discover the way home, if Jesus is our home, what is the way to God? To figure out this whole receiving thing. It dawned on me this week as I started thinking about it. There's a pretty famous story in the Bible, most of you know it, about someone who finds themselves in exile. This is the story of the broad scope of Scripture. Here's again the story of somebody who finds themselves in exile longing to get home. Most of you know the story. It's commonly referred to as the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it's not a true story. Jesus simply made it up. But he did so brilliantly and powerfully. And he did it to teach us, well, to teach us about God, but also to teach us about ourselves. And when you see it, when you turn it like a diamond and you examine it from a different, um, a, you look at a different facet, what you see in light of our exile is that it's not just a story about one son, a prodigal son, it's a story about two and it's a struggle about both of them trying to get home. Now, Christian or not, most of you are familiar with the plot line here. I'm not going to break any new ground for most of you, right? It's in my personal favorite chapter in the Bible, Luke 15, right? I, I probably bring Luke 15 up several times a year. If you remember that chapter in Luke, it's, it's pretty famous because Jesus tells three quick stories, three quick parables. He, he starts with one about a shepherd. Right? We sing about this, this one all the time. He leaves the 99, right, to go and get the one. Shepherd, he, he, he loses one of his hundred sheep. And because it has so much value to him, at great cost to himself and, and the other sheep, he, he searches desperately for it. And when he finds it, he celebrates like crazy. There, there's a second story then. Uh, a woman has 10 coins and she loses one of the coins. And she doesn't wait until morning to look for the coin. The scriptures say she turns on the light and she begins to search urgently for the coin because 10% of everything she had was suddenly gone and the coin was so valuable that after a, a, a costly pursuit, 
when she finds the coin, she celebrates like crazy because that's how valuable what was lost being found was. And then comes that famous story, that most famous of story about a father who has two sons and he's about to lose one of them, the younger son. A lot of you know how it goes. He comes to the father one day. It's just unexpectedly. There's no backstory here. Quite unexpectedly and seemingly out of nowhere, though you have to imagine, because, you know, you're a human being and this request didn't really come out of nowhere. This had been festering in his heart for some amount of time. He comes to his father and he says, Dad, give me my share of your estate, which in Jesus' day in that culture is, to the audience, a stunning and upsetting request. We read it and we go, oh, not a big deal. In that day, this, was, this would have created an audible gasp. As the younger son, he's due a third of the state, a third of the father's estate. The older son was always due a double portion of whatever the father had. So, so the older son would have been due two-thirds, right? The younger son was due a third. The older son was due two-thirds. But that was only to happen upon the death of the father. And so when the younger son comes and he goes to his dad, what he's essentially doing is wishing his father dead. The younger son, as revealed by the request, right? He's not interested in his dad. He's just interested in his dad's things. What, what his father had that he could get, that he could use. The father's wealth, the father's prestige, uh, the comfort it could afford him, the, the independence it, it might allow. And you have to understand, in a respect culture, right? In our culture, we don't have this built in too much anymore, right? We question everything, question authority. In that culture, I mean, this was, this was profane, right? This was a shocking lack of respect for a father. It would have been breathtaking to the audience. In fact, the only thing more unsettling to the people that heard this story about this outrageous son, this outlandish request, would have been the reply back by the father. See, everybody in the crowd would have expected that Jesus would say that what the father, well, at that point, he was so outraged that he, he, he disowned the son. He, he disavowed the son. He, he had the son dragged away, beaten, cut him off, cut him out of his will, had him physically removed from his estate. I have a friend who... who has a, a, a parent, and every time growing up, every time anybody in the family would do anything that would offend, uh, some, so, would offend the father, the father's immediate threat would be, well, I'm going to cut you out of my will, right? That's what, I mean, that's the story here, right? That should have been what, you want your share of the estate? I'll give you your share of the estate. None. Beat it. But that's not what happened. Right? That's, that's what the younger son deserved. But Jesus says in seven simple words, so he divided his property between them. That's it. Son asked, son got. No lecture. So he divided his property between them. Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, brilliant book, by the way. If you're looking to buy somebody a book for Christmas, that's a good one. He points out that in the original Greek of this story, right, when, when the father divides his property, in the Greek, that word is bios, which is where we get our, our, our word for life from. What it me really means is the father divided his life. 
He takes the course of, of his life, that which sustained his life, right? And he divides it between the sons. Why, why that word? Well, because in that day, the father, he didn't have, most of us, if, if, if your kids came to you for your estate, for most of us, our estate is, if we're of, a, of any age, in our 401k or some money we've set aside, right? We've got some kind of investments. We could liquidate them if we needed to, to give our kid the money. But in that day, the father's estate was not tied up in a Vanguard account. His estate was simply his land, what he had, his wealth. That was it. It was in his property. And his land, what he owned in that day, because that was your wealth, that spoke to the community about, well, the kind of man the father was. It, it, it said something about his identity. It said something about his success. It said something to the community about the father's value, right? It shouldn't have, but it did. The truth is, it still does, right? And so the father... He doesn't write the kid a check. The father literally has to get up and give away his life, his identity. He has to, to soil his reputation in the community. He has to downsize everything, and all for the son. And now Jesus' audience, I mean, if they were upset about the kid before, they can't believe the father would do this, but now they're outraged, right? But they're only outraged for a moment, because in a moment, they're going to get what they want. Seemingly so, anyway, because this kid is about to get his comeuppance. He goes off, you know the story, and he takes the very life of the father, the bios, everything he worked for his whole life, and in some short amount of time, he squanders it all away with what the scriptures generously refer to as wild living, right? He takes the father's bios and he spends it all on sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? All the things the father... I don't know about the rock and roll, but all of the other things the father probably would have wanted his life's work supporting. The kid funnels all of the dad's stuff into it, right? He's like on a three-year bender in AC. And he winds up broke, blew it all. Now he has nothing. And you know where he is? The scripture said he's far from home in a distant country. Winds up feeding pigs. He's trying to get by. It's a socially and religiously horrifying job for a young Jewish boy. He would have been declared ceremonially unclean. Nobody could go by him anymore. I mean, he is as distant and far away and exiled as a human being could be. He's at rock bottom. And, and you could hear everybody in the story going, good. Good. I mean, we do that, don't we? Good. It's what you deserved. Got what you deserved. Crowd loved the next line. Jesus said he longed, he had this longing to fill his stomach with just the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody would give him anything. He's longing to eat what the pigs have, right? And he couldn't even do that. Nobody would give him anything, and everyone in the audience said, good. In fact, let's be honest. If Jesus had just ended the story there, wouldn't you and I prefer it, right? Wouldn't you like to go home to your kids and go, hey, I'd like to share a story with you? Watch what you do. You hear this story right here? I mean, we would surround it with all of, like, the cool words, right? Be careful of what you wish for. Actions have consequences. You reap what you sow. What comes around goes around. Karma is a... No, don't say it. <laughs> right? That's the story. Religious people like this story. Right? 
But, and this is important, that's not where the story ended. The audience was comfortable just putting a period there, but Jesus wasn't. And by the way, your story, wherever you are in it, whatever, whatever uh, place of pigs you find yourself in, in this morning, it doesn't end there either. Jesus goes on, he says that when the son came to his senses, I love that, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out, and I'm going to go back to my father. And so he comes up with a plan. He finds himself, right, in a distant country with a longing. He has a longing to go home. But it's super interesting. His desire, his desire to go home isn't to a place. Did you catch what his desire was? He didn't say, I'm going to go to my father's house. He said, I'm going to go to my father. He correctly identified that his desire was for his father. That's what his longing was for. It wasn't for food, it wasn't for a place. I'm gonna go to my father. He goes on, he goes, he, he lays out a plan. I, I, I'm gonna set out, I'm gonna go back to my father and I'm gonna say to him, here's the plan, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now notice the language, very intentional. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. As if he had done something before to make himself worthy to be called my son. I have two sons, John and Caleb. They've done absolutely nothing to be worthy of being my children. Don't tell them I said that. But they are my sons, right? Not by their actions. They are my sons because they're my sons. But he, he was misguided, right? And so here's what he's thinking. He's going, um, there's stuff in the past that I've done which made me feel like, in a sense, my father was indebted to me to call me his son. Uh, in a sense, I, my old performance, the old way I lived, my father owed me being a son. I was entitled to be his son. But now I've done something that has made me unworthy of being his son. And it's that mindset that fuels the plan. Because he says to his father that he wants to become a hired servant. Not a slave, a hired servant. He wants to receive a wage, just a working man's wage. In other words, what he's trying to do is he's trying to make himself worthy again. Because he realizes he has a debt to the father that must be repaid in order that he might be a son again. I can't just come home, hire me, I'll pay you back. I'm going to work to repay you. I'll earn my place again. And so Jesus says, with that plan in his mind, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, again, Jesus, master storyteller, just sets it up so that anybody in the crowd could finish the sentence. You could finish the sentence. If you didn't know the story, you could finish the sentence. Right? Because the audience is hearing it for the first time. When they hear the words prodigal son, it doesn't remind them of a sweet children's story. They're just hearing a great teacher espouse moral truths, and they know what the moral truth should be, that he was filled with. What should he be filled with? He should be filled with anger. He should be filled with righteous indignation. Here comes that clown. Here comes that loser. Here comes that guy that has made me a fool in this town. I can't even show my face. And remember, he doesn't know why he's coming back. 
If you had a kid that took all of your money and went and blew it all in Vegas and you saw him returning home, what would you assume he was coming back for? More money. That's what the audience is assuming. And so you know what, he, you know what the father's thinking. The father's thinking, he's filled with anger. And the audience is going, I can't wait to see this. And that's when Jesus said, no, his father was filled with compassion for him. In fact, the story gets even crazier. Jesus pushes the storyline further because he says that this father runs to his son. And we've talked about this before. In the, cultural, uh, in the culture of ancient Middle East, the ancient Middle East, a patriarch doesn't run. Children run, kids run, women might run. Fathers, landowners, men that are due respect, men that are due respect don't pick up their skirts, expose their legs, and run down the street. That would be embarrassing. No one would do that. But this father did. In fact, Jesus says that when he gets to the son, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. In the Greek, I love this, what this says in the Greek. In the Greek, it says that he literally, the father, fell on his neck. Fell on his neck. That's the emotion that Jesus is trying to convey of this dad. And so... The son, he doesn't know what to think. I mean, he assumes what all of us would assume, that his dad is just irate, and so he kicks into his plan, right? He, he says, Dad, he goes, look, I have sinned against you, and, and, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then the father just cuts him off, just stops him. And he goes, the father said to his servants, quick. That's such a powerful word when you understand the story, because the, the father doesn't go, you know what, let's take this slow. I want to see how you're gonna, this plays out. I want to make sure you're not just, right, like you're not just pulling my leg, you're not just faking, right? I'm going to give you a chance to prove yourself, but we're not, you know, easy. That's not what the father says. The father falls on his neck and yells to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. This is the family ring. It's the signet ring. It has the family seal on it. What it means is I'm back in the family. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. And, and you need to really understand what's happening here, guys. The son, right, he comes to his senses. He longs for home. And home, he, really, he immediately realizes, is not a place, but it's his father. And his plan was that he thought he could come home, right, and he would make himself worthy of, of home. He would earn his way home. He would work his way back to the father. But the father has, will have nothing of that. The father says, no, 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 I'm not, you're not earning your way back. I'm bringing you home. It's over. Sheer grace. Immediate acceptance. By the choice and the will of the father, not his. Now he goes, stop being silly. Let's go on the house and celebrate. And all of us have, to one degree or another, a little, a little younger son in us, especially early in our Christian walk. I know I did, right? In fact, I, I counsel a lot of folks that come to Christ. Um, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're just considering the claims of Jesus. This is an astounding claim. What a great place to be thinking about what Jesus said about the Father. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how distant the country, 
no matter how bad the mess, the Father is not angry with you. The Father is not angry with you. The Father is filled with compassion for you. And if you would but turn and go home, you will be welcomed. The Father is waiting to fall on your neck. Do you understand that? I don't know what you've been told about God, but that's the story Jesus is trying to convey. If you would but turn and go home, the Father will run and fall on your neck. But then, because all of us who, who, who have this little bit of younger son in of us, right, you have to be careful, especially if you're a new believer, because all of us, we all come back to the Father much like the younger son did. We know we need him, we know we want him, and we long for him, and so we come knowing we're unworthy of him, and, and it's just so natural that we want to earn our way back to him, because we think that the way to our Father, to be worthy of God's grace and his love, is to earn it, to make ourselves somehow worthy of it. I can't tell you how many young people I go out with that, that come to Christ, and I mean, some of you are probably in the room. You've come to me and you said, I'd like to get baptized, but, you know, I'm at college and I'm, I got some stuff. And I'm like, all right, I was in college too. I had some stuff. What do you mean? Well, I don't really feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I'm worthy enough. And, and these are folks that would say, well, I've come to Christ, but I, I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. But that's not, that's not the story here. God runs to them and falls on their neck with unmerited forgiveness, unmerited grace. We think the way home, even though we know, you know, we know we claim grace, but we believe that our way to God is through what we do. And God wants no part of what you do. You will not get to him that way. And that's why there's another story here because there's another son just when you thought it might be over everything's kind of patched back together the family's been restored now the older brother is about to enter into a little bit of a conflict with dad too and it's about the whole party he's out working in the field and he comes near the house he hears this rager going on inside right and so he calls a servant over and goes what the heck is happening and the servant says, you're not going to believe this. Your younger brother has come back. It's unbelievable. Your father is your father is beside himself. He said to go get the fattened calf, you know, the one that's, that's yours because you own two-thirds of the estate, the one that you were going to save up for your wedding. That one, yeah, your father just had it killed. They're having a party inside. You should go. Oh, your father's so happy. And then... Jesus does it again. What a storyteller, right? The older brother becomes, well, obviously, he's ecstatic. His long-lost brother's been found. I mean, he could stop worrying now. He could sleep again at night. Oh, my brother, he's free from all of the addictions and the vices and the heartache that sin has caused. Oh, thank God, Jesus, thank you that my brother, well, Jesus wasn't in the story yet, but God, thank you that my brother is home. I mean, heck, even if he held some grudges, which there'd be no reason to hold a grudge, he didn't do anything to the older brother. The older brother still had two-thirds of the estate. He didn't do anything to the older brother. Even if he had some issues with him, though, just knowing the joy of his father, right, knowing how happy his father was, he should be rejoicing right along with his dad, which is why everyone in the audience was taken off guard again when Jesus said that the older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
He's furious. I'm not going home. And it was his turn to insult and offend the father. The father's in there with the whole town celebrating. And the older son shows up and goes, yeah, go in there and tell him I'm not coming in. It was his turn to turn his back on his father and his family. And so again, what do you see? You see the father, right? Do you see the father indignant at the older son for his attitude? Does he, fi- does he say, like I would say, fine, just let that self-centered, you know what, stay outside? This is God, man. He's so much better than you think. He's so much better than we are. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Can you imagine? The older son, I mean, he's just so angry. And he lets the father have it, okay? Look, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed any of your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, so great, right? Not my brother, not not your son. But when this son of yours comes home, who squandered your property, and I like it, we never heard really prostitutes until he let us know. By the way, Dad, let me tell you about what he did, right? This son who is out there squandering your property, your bios with whores, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I'm not coming in. I don't want to be a part of any of it. And what is he upset about, really? Step into the story. Why is he so mad? He's mad because of the cost of the party. That's what he cites. How dare you? The older brother doesn't care. He doesn't care that the father is, this is the best day of the father's life. The older brother doesn't care because the fattened calf, this was supposed to be his party. This was supposed to be his estate. It was going to get left for him. And now the father's just wasting. And when the older brother, what he reveals in that moment is his heart. Now listen, this is so important you get this in the story, okay? Even though his actions were very different, one brother ran off and spent all of the, other, the father's money. This brother stayed home and did everything that he thought the father wanted him to do. Even though we worked in all of the fields all of those years while the younger brother was partying, his heart was no different. He was not rejoicing with the father on the greatest day of his father's life, right? Because just like the, the younger brother, he didn't want the father. He just wanted the father's stuff. And he had a different way that he planned on getting it. And again, I mean, the kid reveals himself to the father again, basically saying, I don't care about you either. I just wanted your stuff too. I was just trying to do it the right way. What does the father say? You buffoon, get out of my sight. My son. Interesting. The, The older son wouldn't refer to the younger son as the father's son. He immediately, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was, he was lost and he's found. The father again responds with compassion that it's hard for us to even understand. You're always with me. Interesting language, right? It has to do with proximity. The younger son winds up far away in a distant country in exile, longing to be home with the father. Why? Sin. The kind that you and I are are familiar with, right? The kind where he's just out and you're like, yeah, uh uh-huh. 
the traditional way that we see things separating us from God, the wild living, the prostitutes, the vices, sin separated the younger son from the father. And now the father says to the elder son, you know, you've always been with me, you've always been near, but now the older son separates himself from the father, and the result is no different than what happened with the younger son. It's just sin. It's just sin expressing itself in a different form. The son is alienated not by being bad, but in some sense by being good. What kept him from his father was his self-righteousness, his goodness, his works. Don't you see, the younger son didn't want to come to the party because he didn't think he was worthy. And the younger son won't come to the party because he thinks he is. There are two ways that you can wind up very far from home. And you can lose your way there just as easily through religion and self-righteousness as you can through licentious living and overt sin. They breed the same thing, a distance and a separation from God. And at the heart of the distance is that both the younger brother and the elder brother, they don't want the father. They just wanted his stuff. Why? Because for a moment, the younger brother came to his senses. But for a moment, they believed that they could make their home, their place of belonging and control and comfort and things, they could make their home, well, if they had the estate and the identity and the house and the money and the position, they thought then they would squelch that feeling, that desire, that longing. But they don't because home is only found in proximity to the father. The younger son realizes this and comes home. And what's so strange about the story is, you know, it just ends. We never know what happens to the older brother. Did you know that? It just ends. The older son might never have come home. We don't know if he goes in. Forgiveness and grace were offered to both sons. We only know that one took it. That's the power of religion, what it can do to you. Well, when the story ends, right, it ends this way. The younger son, the bad son, is back in the house, and the elder son is outside. Do you know how offensive that was to the religious leaders listening to this? The way home was, in some sense, the same for both brothers. It was this concept of repentance for the younger brother. And look, maybe you're in that position this morning, right? Maybe you're a younger brother, and you have to repent from sinful ways of living, wild living, rebellion. But for the older brother, the way home was the same too, repentance. But this time it was for what was behind all of his good works and sacrifices that he did, not because he loved the father, but because he just wanted the father's stuff too. Have you ever questioned your own motives? Even for the good things you do, why am I doing this? Am I doing it because I love my father? Or am I doing it because I want his stuff? See, they both needed to repent. They both needed to change the way they saw things, the direction that they were going. They both needed and were welcome to come home, but there is only one way. The message in the story is clear all through the scriptures. Sin separates us from God, from home, and from one another. But forgiveness facilitates the way back. And forgiveness is what brings us back one to another together. We're welcomed home by unmerited forgiveness of the Father. We come home through grace. The Father's the initiator of it. He goes out to both sons to bring them into the feast. He goes out to one and kisses them and invites them in. The second son, he goes out and he pleads for him to come in. 
And now here, don't miss the Christmas part of this. This is so beautiful if you get it. It's so powerful. I never saw it before. Again, in that book, Prodigal God, right? It, the, the Christmas story is beautifully displayed here. Remember, this story is placed in Luke 15 for a reason, right? It's the last of three stories. The first one is this lost sheep. What does the shepherd do? The shepherd goes out on a costly search, leaves 99 to go find one. There's a cost associated with that search. And then the woman, right, she loses her coin, and she turns the house upside down looking for that coin because there's a cost associated with looking for that coin. But what's pointed out so beautifully in, in, in Prodigal God is in this third story, you would expect that the father would go looking for the son, but nobody ever goes looking for him. The father waits. The father looks. When he comes back, the father runs to him, but nobody goes out after him looking for him. And what everyone in the audience would have started to, to go is, well, we know what should have happened. See, you and I don't. We don't understand the cultural background. But they understood what should have happened. Jesus does this on purpose because he wants them to wonder what happened. Somebody in the story had a responsibility to go looking for that younger brother. And you know whose responsibility it was? The older brother's. And the older brother who had two-thirds of the estate knew that if he left, he would leave the estate behind and searching for that younger brother would have a cost associated with it. And he didn't want to do it. He was indeed, as God asked Cain, and Cain said, what am I, my brother's keeper? That was what was imperative for this older brother. He should have stepped up when the younger brother left and gone to his father and said to his father, Father, I know your heart and I know your desire for my brother to come home. I will do everything at all costs to bring him home. I'll bear the expense and the burden. Because remember, when the younger son comes home and the dad throws the party to end all parties, there's an expense associated with it. It openly came out of the older brother's estate. The forgiveness, the way home for the younger brother was not free. We just celebrated that our forgiveness is not free. It came with a cost. The younger brother experienced grace, but somebody still had to pay. Forgiveness, because justice is involved, it always has a cost, and somebody must absorb the cost. Somebody must be willing to pay. And in the story, while the elder brother should have been willing to bear the cost and go and bring the younger one home, in the story he balks, he just stays home. Friends, the story of Christmas is the story of exiles constantly being invited back home. Much like it's the story of Abraham leaving his father's home country to start a new kind of people in a new and promised land. That's what Jesus came to do. Right? Much, much like Moses, Jesus being the new and better Moses, leading his people out of bondages and, and, and captivity back to a promised land. But hear this now. The story of Christmas is also of the true and better elder brother willing to go and leave his father's house and estate and go find all of us. God bringing us back into the family. God placing the signet family ring on it. But you coming home had a cost associated with it because forgiveness always has a cost. Jesus is the true elder brother who has come to get us and bring us home, and he is the elder brother willing to bear the cost, even the cost of the cross for you. And he did it all so that you might come home. Like the younger brother, salvation is free for us, but we have a true and better elder brother willing to pay the price to bring us home. And that price was not something out of his wallet, but it was something out of his back. 
and his side. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way home, and the way home is forgiveness. And so the story is, is this. You have been invited home at, at a great cost to the older brother. Younger brothers, older brothers, the self-indulgent and self-righteous, each of you whose heart has been far from God, each of us who have wanted his stuff more than we wanted him, each of us have been pursued beginning the first night in that manger in Bethlehem by an older brother willing to bear every cost to bring you home. But I'll close with this final thought. If you're in the room today and you haven't yielded your life to this true and better elder brother, if you haven't tasted of grace and forgiveness, then this season is for you. You should come home. But for many of us that have, that would say, well, I have done that, can I ask you to reflect this week on another question? Who is it that your lack of grace and forgiveness is keeping from home? Whose offense against you, whose sin against you, have you been unwilling, in a sense, to absorb? Somebody will always need to pay for forgiveness. Whose, whose shortcoming are you unwilling to absorb the cost of? Who, well, honestly, who won't be at your Christmas table this Christmas? Who, who's not welcome in your home? And maybe they'll be there because, you know, you're not that kind of a person, but let's just be honest. You know, they'll be sitting at the other end of the table and you'll be gritting your teeth. Who's unwelcome in your heart? Because you can't understand this story at the depth which it needs to be understood and then go out and withhold forgiveness. You can't. You can't go out. You've been welcomed home at great cost. You now don't have the right to ban people, to not allow someone to come home to you, to your love, to your family, to your heart. Is there somebody whose sin has caused you to place them in exile in a distant country this Christmas? Maybe not physically, but emotionally. Maybe your heart has grown cold to them like the sons did to the father. Maybe they've disrespected you. Maybe they've embarrassed you. Maybe they've dishonored you. Maybe they've made you uncomfortable. And maybe you're thinking, well, I mean, I would be willing to forgive, right? And so you're willing, in a sense, that you see yourself as the father willing to stand out on the porch. And if, if he turns and comes back, then I might be willing to meet them halfway. But until they turn and come towards me, I'm not interested. Friends, don't miss the Christmas story. Jesus comes to us first. While we were yet sinners, John, or the scriptures proclaim, Christ died for us. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, John says. Over and over, the story of being welcomed home is that it comes because somebody initiated it. Someone was willing to absorb the cost. Jesus said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And so if you have something against someone, you go and search and find and forgive and bring home. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Okay, so in this case, if they've done something to you, if it was their sin, they did it. Whose responsibility is it to welcome them home? Yours. You go and search and find and bring them home. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift 
And so what does that say? If you think you did nothing, but they have a problem with you, guess whose responsibility it is to go? You are, you are, are the sons and daughters of the better elder brother. You go and you search and you find and you bring them home. This is the story of Christmas. You have been invited home. And there's always a cost associated with forgiveness. Jesus was more than willing to absorb it for you. Now this Christmas, go and be willing to do the same. Let's stand and close this song.